To mark the first ever episode of this series, we wanted a guest that everyone would be familiar with. To most, a living legend. To some, a surgical maverick. To me, a lifesaver. This is community. This is specialist. This is collaboration. This is more than. This is more than. This is more than. This is more than a hospital. With me, your host, Ollie Lurrington. As a transplant recipient at Harefield, I don't know if there's any better way to kick off our podcast series than our conversation today with Professor Samagdi Yacoub, marking the 40th anniversary of his completion of Europe's first combined heart and lung transplant. Samagdi is one of the most recognisable names in modern medicine. Here at Harefield Hospital, he created the largest heart and lung transplantation programme in the world, and his portrait still watches over patients in the transplant clinic. The statue erected to him in his native Egypt shows how far his influence has reached over a career that has transformed my own life among thousands of others. Beyond his countless professional achievements, he has also founded and led several research and charitable institutions, including the Harefield Heart Science Centre, the Magdi Yacoub Global Heart Foundation, and Chain of Hope, a charity dedicated to bringing life-saving treatments to children in developing and war-torn countries. So Magdi, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thank you for, for uh, talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> so take us back 40 years ago today, your preparing to go into theatre to perform the Europe's first combined heart-lung transplant. How did it feel at the time? Did it feel like a really significant moment to you? No, not at all. Um, obviously, I knew that this was the first uh, heart-lung transplant in Europe. Uh, the operation uh, was already uh, performed at Stanford University and I knew uh, about that. However, uh, we had a relationship with Sweden where we uh, were transplanting uh, hearts for all their patients because at that time they did not uh, recognize brain death uh, criteria. I used to go there and help them to establish brain death criteria and start their own transplant, which we did. But also, we had uh, a world uh, uh, a program of uh, harvesting hearts from all over Europe Germany, Sweden, uh, Greece. And uh, so they were very generous in generating uh, organs for British people. And that was uh, great. Now, uh, the first heart-lung transplant went to Stanford first. And they said, you are not suitable for the operation. You're too far gone. And we know that if you leave patients to deteriorate too far, the multi-organs fail, even if the transplant succeeds. Now, 
this person uh, was a very brave person and they have empathy with my patients. I realize that how they feel, they are the end of the road. Nobody wants to help them. And they are brave to try and help themselves. So I feel for them, why not give this person a chance knowing uh, that there is there are increased risks uh, because this is his last chance. And you know something, uh, chances are chances. You can suddenly win. Uh, so I felt that we should give him a chance. And he was such a wonderful person. Now, have I seen the operation before? I heard about it. I, uh, in those days, I uh, used to study everything so meticulously. Uh, I knew uh, the example of uh, you don't have to do everything in animal models. You can study the thing intensely and uh, define all the steps of the operation, uh, including uh, the movement of the hand and the brain and everything else. And also, I knew, uh, I used to read a lot about sleep and what happens during sleep. And there was a whole issue of nature uh, which was entitled uh, Sleep Researchers Caught Sleeping. <laughs> and it was very, very intense because it showed, uh, for example, one of the editorials or news and views in nature at that time, it said, if you are worried about something, sleep on it. What does that mean? It means that the brain, when you have an intense feeling to solve a problem, does not stop when you go to sleep. It actually goes on uh, processing uh, the problem and in the morning you get more answers. So we kept doing that until I knew absolutely every step of the operation, every movement of the hand, everything. So I went in uh, to perform this operation uh, for this Swedish lovely man. Uh, I just went through very quickly seamlessly, as if I've done thousands of these operations, didn't even hesitate. And some of my assistants later wrote about that, saying they, they were amazed. Uh, now, this kind of thing might not be allowed today because they will say, how many animal models have you done, or da, 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 uh, which is stifling uh, progress anyway. The organs worked beautifully, uh, but his other organs started to fail. And uh, what Stanford predicted actually happened three, four weeks later. Everybody was very saddened, of course, at that day. But you must uh, try and know that there is something called teaching or initial experience uh, which will have a higher risk, but that will establish uh, a whole lot of other things in the future. And that's precisely what happened 
at Hafir because Hafir became the, uh, the center which did 3,500 uh, transplants of which like 2,000 were heart lung and introduced innovations in heart lung transplantation including revascularization, the domino operation, and so on. So trying in desperate situations, but for the sake of the patient. Because sometimes people say, oh, you were experimenting on the patient for your own glory. Never for my own I never thought of myself. Uh, I know that the most important thing when young people ask me that what is the secret of success? I want to do uh, heart surgery or some other thing. It's really simple. There are three things you have to follow, letters. Uh, and they are PPH. What is PPH? Uh, I say to them, the first is passion, that you want to be in love with your uh, chosen specialty. And that's exactly what I had. That wake up in the morning, I want to rush to the hospital because I have a passion to my uh, vocation and what I want to do. The second is uh, P, is persistence. You don't have to be a genius. You just have to persist because genius is go here, there and everything and never get anywhere. But persistence is very important. And the third, which is the most important one, is humility. Be humble, not full of yourself, and know that discovery is only a step in the line of other things. It opens up what you think is uh, the top of the mountain is actually a small hill, and the mountain is still up there and you have to keep going after it. So that is, in short, what happened with the first heart-lung transplant in Europe, which has opened, had a thing for many, many, many patients. Uh, forgive me, you, you yourself, because we also uh, at Hairfield and a champion uh, surgery for cystic fibrosis because everybody thought cystic fibrosis is just incurable because there, uh, there is infection, persistent infection. And there was a dedicated physician by the name of Margaret Hudson who really did wonderful things looking after. But they died in their at a young age, you made them survive to 20, 30, when we could do something. And we knew that you have to replace both lungs, because if you leave one lung, it will infect the other one and we're finished. And taking the lung, which is so, the infected lung stuck full of pus, and people say, you'll never get out of that. But we did. We took both lungs, and that was, again, part of the experience gained from the first heart-lung transplantation, which was for pulmonary hypertension, raised pressure in the lungs, and opened 
really many, many, many avenues around the world to benefit patients. I think one of the things that that strikes me what that the things that you talk about in terms of not not being limited by what other people think of patients' chances and and I think a, a for people like me with cystic fibrosis, that's obviously made a huge difference. But I think the other thing about transplant that, that people often miss is it's not just about saving someone's life. It, it completely transforms lives. I mean, my life, for the, for the two years I was on a waiting list before my transplant, my life was nothing, essentially. I was... It's, I mean, to all intents and purposes, I was bound at home to tied to an oxygen machine and couldn't really do anything. And now, I mean, now I'm sitting in Harefield talking to you and, and being able to do things like this that, frankly, I would never have been able to do. And I've done so much more. And I think that's an important part of transplant, isn't it? That it's not just about not dying it's about being able to live again right absolutely i couldn't agree with you more it is the quality of life uh, which matters a lot if you ask many patients do you yeah, i give you two choices do you want to live longer or do you want to have a good quality of life you can't have both uh, they will always go for the quality of life as it happens Transplantation gives you both, gives you a longer life because, and a better quality of life. And there was a very, very interesting uh, thing about in the history of uh, this hospital. Because um, initially, Donald Longmore and others were, and many of us, even before uh, the first heart uh, transplantation, uh, in South Africa, uh, we knew that transplantation has reached uh, a level that heart transplantation needs to be uh, applied clinically. But uh, what happened after that is that it took some time for it to be established, uh, like I was just saying to you, uh, particularly uh, in terms of heart transplantation, which is, it went from something which newspapers, forgive me, <laughs> used to fight, saying this dreadful, unethical operation, which is experimental, and the patients are not going to survive for more than a year or two, just for experimentation, and making people famous? Absolutely not. It, uh, it completely turned around and became the success story of the 20th century. It's just completely the opposite. And the Ministry of Health at that time, when we established heart transplantation, that was heart, initially with the when cyclosporin and good immunosuppression came, uh, there was a mor moratorium. So we started, Papua started and we started the heart, trans heart transplantation. Then the ministry said 
two things. The first one was uh, heart transplantation should not be done in a village hospital. And they said, are we a village hospital? So they said, yes, it should be done in central London in a teaching hospital. So they established a committee, and that was called the Goodwin Committee. Goodwin was uh, the most internationally known cardiologist in the world, and he assembled a whole lot of uh, cardiologists as well as immunologists from this country and from abroad, and they came and scrutinized the facilities at Hairfield. And uh, their report was, this is the one of the best international centers we have seen anywhere in the world. So they couldn't get rid of that. The next thing is they said, oh, but is transplantation itself uh, a viable thing? So uh, again, the Department of Health said, we're not going to pay for it. You have to find the money yourself uh, to pay for transplant operation. So the pe people in the village and many other people were collecting uh, money. And this unit where we are sitting in uh, the research center was established initially to collect money to pay the NHS uh, for the operations. But then people said, we were very upset at that time. And uh, they said, okay. And that was quite nice uh, that they said to scientifically um, prove that transplantation is a worthwhile operation or not. We will give money to an independent group, which happened to be uh, the neighboring university here and uh, they will look into the efficacy of the operation between Papworth and Harefield. So the, we were cross and said, why are you wasting this money? Actually, it was not money wasted because we said, okay, we will cooperate so long as you let us know where are we wasting money. So they reported back to the ministry uh, quantifying what they call qualities. Qualities is a quality adjusted life year. So how many quality and how many, how long are you living? And compared it to other operations performed for cancer or anything else. And transplantation was way superior, much better. So that was the greatest thing to ha which happened to transplantation that they said we have to prove in a scientific fashion how effective the procedure is. The following morning in Parliament, they gave several millions uh, funding and we stopped collecting money in the church and everywhere to pay for the transplant operation. So all this is history. People don't know uh, the a greatest success, I say, of uh, the success story of the 20th century. How did it come about? Not painlessly. There was a lot of pain. I think that political fight is 
as you say, it, it's part of the history that people don't don't often know. They think there's this progress of transplants that come through that, you know, there's an, a natural progress or progression through the different types of transplant that came in. And, you know, by 1983, the skills and the science and the techniques were good enough to do a heart-lung transplant. But it, it it's about that, the years and years that you went through trying to trying to fight to make sure that you were allowed and you were funded to do these operations. Was there ever a point in there where you gave up hope or you thought this is never going to happen? Absolutely. I think you put your finger on it, uh, that without determination for saving humanity, because there is massive inequalities in healthcare delivery and if you don't fight back and try and help humanity because humanity is in pain and it is in pain because a lot of it is due to cardiovascular disease both heart lung and vessels so we really have to uh, be determined uh, to get rid of that pain uh, and it doesn't happen spontaneously it, it has to be determined fight if you like and is that something do you think the fight that you had to go through back then do you think that informed the way that your your life and career went from that point i'm thinking particularly of of the foundations and the charities that you've set up like chain of hope which is is very much focused on the, the inequalities of, of access to healthcare and things. So do you think that period of time helped shape what you went on to do? Uh, absolutely. The progress in life is uh, like uh, the philosopher of science, Karl Popper, uh, who is credited for being the person with greatest influence on our thinking. And uh, he wrote a whole book uh, entitled uh, Conjectures and Refutation. And he said that science does not progress slowly and predictably in a straight line. Actually, it starts with an imaginative leap. Uh, but this, following that imaginative leap, uh, several years will elapse uh, to try and either prove or refute to his way of thinking, we, the scientists, or whoever came with the imaginary, should try and refute. Sometimes we fall into the uh, trap of not trying to refute, but then our peers come with the refutation. And we should accept that because they are driving us towards the truth, because science is their search for the truth. So the science is an integral, integral part of uh, human care or medicine. And without science, without trying to criticize yourself, uh, there will be no progress. And certainly uh, transplantation and what you have gone through and what we have gone through 
is instrumental in moving uh, towards uh, our current thinking and uh, shaped us as much as we shape these specialties. But establishing a service is so good uh, that even now, 50 years later, half a century, I'll be walking in the street and somebody says, thank you. What have I done to you? I've done nothing. And he said, the unit of the transplantation has served my, saved my son only last week. And without this, it wouldn't have happened. So this is wonderful. And uh, the other thing which is, have affected us all is that it actually superseded our expectation because we were transplanting patients from um, New Zealand, Australia, and so on. And they were thinking they will survive two to three years. Some of them are alive 37 years later to see their grandchildren and all that. Wonderful, what a thing. So that is sometimes if you try, uh, the result actually shapes you uh, more than you expected. Does that answer your question? It does. It does. It's really interesting to hear you say that. I, I, it's not. It's not a common thing that you hear. I think that um, you imagine you imagine surgeons or doctors or whoever they are that they. It, I mean, it's it's always more than a job, right? That there are very few doctors or surgeons who have dedicated their careers to this sort of thing because it it's a job um but i think it's it's always interesting to know and to hear from people where you can i mean you can hear the passion in your voice you can hear how much it means to you and the the difference it has made to see some of your patients live as long as they have one of the things that i'm I'm trying to dig into as part of this podcast is to understand the the community that exists in Harefield and, and the Brompton hospitals. And I think I've had particular personal experience of it. And I, I remember distinctly just after my transplant, the first time I was kind of mobilized and walked down the corridor still with all of the various chest drains and wires and everything else off me, I remember really vividly that one of the cleaners stopped and cheered me on as I went past him. And it's, I mean, that sort of community doesn't exist in any other hospital. And believe me, I've been to a lot of other hospitals. But I feel like a lot of that started with you and, and the group that you brought together to, to start way back at the beginning of building what you've built here at Harefield. And I, I'm interested in, in why that was important to you. Why did you want to build a group that worked like that? And how is it, how is it better? Or, or how did it seem to be better for you? Absolutely. I think uh, what you are describing is what I call the spirit of Harefield. And uh, many people actually articulated in different ways than you did, uh, that the cleaners cheered you. The spirit of excellence 
of it is patient centric and we've created that in Aswan Heart Center uh, where again they have the same spirit we are patient centric we want to see the patient and whether it's the cleaner uh, is anybody around uh, this striving to achieve excellence and sometimes we we talk about I was talking about the mountain and the hills and so on and saying we want to climb Mount Excellence can we we're trying oh my god we're trying uh, to get to do it and that is what Karl Popper mentioned in his book uh, or conjectures and refutations is what he called an imaginative leap you jump but where do you go from here uh, you hold on and see whether what this jump uh, is achieving what you wanted in the first place but never let go but creating i mean you could you could describe your creation of that that culture of excellence that's an an imaginative leap of its own right that that's something that wasn't really a huge focus for for hospitals and surgeons and and things like that when you started Harefield so what what was it that you saw the potential for I think I'm proud to belong to this group because I think that they are self-driving now uh, they don't need me at all uh, and the same in Aswan Heart Center they have the spirit um, but how did they come about I think the, uh, they have it in them uh, that they identify with excellence and they as we were looking for them but also they were looking for us and they came so I cannot uh, claim credit for all that all these guys who came here and formed part of the community of excellence trying to climb Mount Excellence had it in them I didn't create it myself it's just we found each other and there was like meeting of minds if you like I I think we might have to to agree to disagree on that one because I think I think you did play quite a big part in that I think it's it's impossible to see that that culture coming to to pass without you at the center of it I think one of the things I'm I'm interested in is is from when when you were first training you were you sought out some of the best people in the world to train under and it's exactly what you're talking about now is is people are seeking to come and be part of that that excellence but also people have spent years now coming to you specifically wanting to to train under you how does it feel to be on the the flip side of that coin now that you've gone from seeking the best people to train under to being sought 
to train under. I think that's uh, a very good description and generous on your part. And some of that is uh, already published in this book by two uh, reporters from the Sunday Times. So you're talking there about a surgeon and a maverick. Yeah. Uh, the life and pioneering work of Magdi Yacoub, which is the, the new biography, isn't it? Yeah, it is a kind of biography. And they described, uh, did a whole lot of research uh, and to find out who was living at the time, who did I target, so like you were saying, I targeted people when I was a student. I knew of Lord Brock. He was Mr. Brock at the time. Uh, and I said, I must go and uh, work for this person. Particularly, my dad was a doctor. And he lost his younger sister because of rheumatic heart disease. And Brock was already opening valves. And I said, mm, I really have to go and work for this guy, and they did. And he had a profound effect on my life. And now the cycle goes on. I suppose it, it is a cycle, isn't it? That there's always, there's always the people who train and then they start training other people and they start training other people. And I, I think there are always people who are at the peak of whatever, whatever profession and whatever specialism it is who people will want to train under. Um, and I think it's clear that, that you are one of those people. Um, and you have been one of those people for a long time now. And you, you must get asked quite a lot that, um, you know, at, at what point do you start slowing down? Sometimes I feel I don't deserve all that credit. But do I do feel proud when I get letters from Yemen saying, I went into medicine because I heard about you. If you can do it, I can do it. That gives me a lot of pain because the specialty uh, needs uh, a lot of talent, young talent, and it is happening because of hearing about the story. It's really clear just from the conversation that we're having right now, you're, you're an incredibly humble man. Um, and you talked about the need for humility in, in the, the PPH. Um, but you must, you must recognize the significance of the achievements that you've made over the years, of the, the things that you have pioneered, the, the research centers that you've built. You, you must recognize that that's, that that's a singular success that's come from, from the work that you have done. Partly, and I'm happy to have that, to witness that, uh, and may it continue, because we have uh, to pass on everything. I don't want to die until I pass on everything I have learned to the new generation, because I see, look at what's happening now, the wars and this and this and that, and the hatred, and it's disaster. Uh, but the younger generation has uh, a lot more understanding of uh, how they can uh, mend our work, uh, if you like, have a world without war, for example, have a world without hatred. Are we going to achieve that? 
it's uh, we moved a bit forward uh, in the days of uh, Gorbachev and Mrs. Thatcher taking the uh, Berlin Wall down, but we went back badly. So we need to gain momentum again, and the young people and our role in passing on that to the young people is essential. And you're, you're still passing on your knowledge and your skills to, to young people. Um, and you're, you're making sure that people have the opportunities to, I mean, it's not, it's not just people having the opportunity to access cardiac treatment and cardiac care, but you're investing in training new doctors and surgeons around, around the world as well. Fundamental. I think that's a real fundamental area which I continue. Uh, I don't operate myself, but I uh, scrub with uh, my trainees. They want me to scrub uh, or stand at the end of the table and saying, let us do this or that. And innovate as well, uh, uh, saying, let's have another operation which is uh, more effective worldwide and uh, more applicable. And it happens. So that gives me a lot of pleasure. I know that over the years you must have met, well, probably definitely hundreds, if not thousands of people who have um, who've said thank you to you for, for the work that you've done. And... And I think it's important to recognise that we're not just talking about patients here. It's not just it's not just my life that's been affected by my transplant. It's my family's lives, it's my friends' lives. And so every single person who who has a transplant that touches many more lives. And I think it's it's really rare in life that you can ever say you speak for a group of people. But I think I speak for everybody that your legacy has touched when I, I say thank you. And I can't, I can't sit here in your office talking to you without saying thank you for the work that you've done. And however much credit you want to take or refuse to take, um, it's, a, it's a really big deal. And, and I think just having the opportunity to be here is, is exceptional. And I genuinely, I can't think of a better way of starting off this podcast series that, that we're doing now. So, uh, so Magda Yacoub, thank you so much for, for talking to us today. Thank you for your kind words. That was Professor Sir Magda Yacoub talking to us in his office in the Harefield Heart Science Centre. And it was an amazing conversation. It was incredible to hear him talking so openly about the difficulties that he's faced particularly in the early years of setting up such an incredible place but also the pride that he clearly has not only in the work that he's done but in the work that the people who have followed him and who are learning under him are doing. I'm looking forward to having a lot more of those conversations in the new year so subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and thank you so much for listening